0: Welcome to Divorce Stories with attorney Dennis Vetrano, the show for people that want real answers to real divorce questions from a real divorce lawyer. And now here's your host, attorney Dennis Vetrano. Welcome to Divorce Stories, and I'm your host, uh, divorce attorney Dennis Vetrano. Here we are at episode number six, and this episode is going to be all about Last episode was about how do you choose the right lawyer? And this one's really going to cent- centralize on a handful of listener questions that kind of puts on display, you know, why it's so important to choose the right lawyer and what issues could come up if you don't. And don't forget, as I said before, listener questions. Listen, if you want to hear your question answered on our podcast, please send your question to Divorce Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So let's get into our first question today. What is a general practice lawyer? Uh, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail in that. This particular person was describing how they're having some difficulty with the approach of their lawyer. So it wasn't just what's a general practice lawyer. It was more going into detail of, I have a general practice lawyer, I think, and this person doesn't seem to be taking the approach that, that makes me feel comfortable. So what is a general practice lawyer? In New York State, you cannot say that you specialize in a particular area of law, and in large part because we don't have any mechanism through, your, through the New York State Bar Association to certify any lawyer as a specialist in a particular area of law. That being said, I always suggest to clients, look for a lawyer just like you would look for a specialist for your foot or your eye or your knee or your ankle. You know, if you go to a general practitioner doctor and they, and they have a very specific, as I understand it, very rigorous uh, certification process to determine or designate doctors as specialists. We as lawyers, in New York State at least, do not have that, unfortunately. So if you go to your doctor, general practitioner, they're going to say, hey, you've got a problem with your eye. Go see the eye specialist. You've got a problem with your knee. Go see the orthopedist or the knee specialist. Lawyer's not quite the same thing. But here's the thing. All lawyers technically in New York State are general practice lawyers. But because you can practice everywhere and you're not necessarily specialized in any singular area of law. However you can choose to focus your efforts on one or two or three or five or ten areas of law. I always suggest, take a look at the size of your law firm. And I know law firms that have 100 lawyers. They have 10 or 15 or 20 different departments. And each department may have five or ten lawyers and then designated support staff for that particular area of law. And while those lawyers can't technically say they're specialists... All of their continuing legal education uh, trainings are taken in one area of law, generally speaking. Um, all of their experience and the cases that they handle day to day is in that particular area of law, one or two. So, so in this regard, also their resources, their, their horn books, their online research, everything is focused, their form systems, everything is focused to one particular area of law. I always felt... That's the way lawyers should practice. That is the correct way to practice. Pick one or two areas of law and be excellent at it. Immerse yourself in it. Do, take, take on, you know, reach out for any resource you can to be the best you can at that particular area of law not really a specialist because you can't say that in New York, but as I tell most people, anybody who will listen really, um, is that we focus on family law and divorce. They are necessarily intertwined and interrelated, and we try as best we can to be the top-notch law firm in that particular area of law. So when this listener asks, what's a general practice lawyer? Generally every lawyer because nobody can specialize, but what you should look for is look for a lawyer if you're searching for an attorney. Look for an attorney who practices in that particular area of law almost solely. They can say stuff like focus. They can say stuff like only handles. If you look at their website, what are you seeing there? Are you seeing I do real estate, I'll do your traffic ticket, I'll do your criminal defense, by the way, I'll write your will. Just can't be the best at everything. Now, this particular listener also said, look, I'm not getting, I I don't really know what's happening with the case. They don't seem to be explaining to me why my case isn't stronger, why I should take a particular direction. And I'll just say, look, as I've said before, choosing the right lawyer for you has a lot to do with a number of different things, but it's about being a good fit. Our approach has always been on top of everything all the time, speaking with the client before any meeting. Reviewing the file before any case call. Making sure if anything comes through the door, the client sees it first. A letter, an order, a scheduling notice, anything. So, so just being in tune with the client so you're lockstep with everything that's being done, okay? Not every lawyer approaches it that way. And I always find like, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, when I started handling family court cases, you go into court and things are going to happen, because family court cases are special proceedings. They move more quickly than the average case. So typically, temporary orders will be issued. Custody and visitation could be changed. There could be tweaks in the schedule. Um, they could, there could be orders directing one or the other party to do things or refrain from doing things. So as you come out of court, a lot of lawyers would just say, Okay, here's what happened. I'll see you, I'll see you next court appearance. Here's my approach. And, and, and this is not everybody's cup of tea, but this is the way I do things. We come out of court. I say, Hey... This is what happened today. Let me review it. Take a conference room. Close the door. Sit down for a couple minutes. Many times, listen, you've got to understand, your client goes in there very nervous. They don't know what's happening. Things are moving very quickly. Explain it to them then. And then I say, listen, think about it. Call my office, or I schedule with them right on the spot, a meeting to follow up two or three days later. Because for for clients, for people in general, it takes you some time to digest all of the things that transpired during that court appearance. So then we'd have a follow-up meeting two or three days after that. And then really determine, where do we go from here? Did what happened that day at court cause us to change our approach at all? Is there anything new we need to address? Are there any new issues that have arisen in the last couple of days or as a result of that court appearance? So I think, again, this particular listener's question was, is it, you know, do I have a general practice lawyer, which generally speaking is, you know, most lawyers, but... If that person focuses on one solely solely one area of law, you almost have you know, can't say specialist, but you have somebody that's that's really a family law attorney or divorce lawyer, which is a good starting point. And then you just have to get a feel for, is this person approaching the case and handling it in a way that's comfortable for you? So in this particular person's description, they said, we came out of a court appearance, you know, XYZ happened, I really was unclear why they're giving me advice, why they're telling me to go this way or, or not go that way. And in that particular circumstance, what I would have done is sit down in the privacy of your office two or three days after the court appearance, after everything's settled, and just go through everything with the client. Give them time to, to digest it in a calm, cool, collected environment outside of the courthouse, answer any questions they may have, and then decide together, do you need to change course? How does this affect your case? But again, that's a matter of style. Not only is that a matter of expertise and knowledge, um, but it's also a matter of style. So again... General practice lawyer, anybody can be one, but you should really be, in my opinion, focusing on choosing a lawyer that handles that particular area of law. And then again, end up with a lawyer that, or choose a lawyer, that is going to have the style that you want. I have some clients that say, look, don't call me unless it's something really important, and that's okay. But I think the initial approach is to, to, to be comprehensive. Understand that clients are going through a difficult, stressful time. May, you may be answering questions, the same question over and over and over again, but as I've always said to clients, I've been practicing going on you, you know, over 20 years now, and I've had seven years of school and hundreds of hours, actually probably thou- no thousands of hours of training in this particular area of law throughout. How can I expect in a 10 minute or 15 minute or 25 minute or hour and a half hour and a half long conversation that you're going to be able to digest and retain all of this all at once even the smartest people out there okay cuz this is what I do this is my profession so again i think you have to choose a lawyer that has a style that works for you and if you find that it's not really going in the direction you want you know i tell clients don't hesitate sooner rather than later to just speak with another lawyer and see if it's time to make a change. Sometimes it is. But I think it's knowledge and experience and stylistic. But you have to be comfortable with the lawyer you've chosen. And once you're in court, if you're getting a feeling like it's not the right person, that's a time to take a long, hard look at it and say, hey, maybe it's time to make a change. Okay, so continuing with our general theme, or what are what of the what are the pitfalls that can come up either if you don't use a lawyer or if you choose the wrong lawyer? Um, next question from a listener is: I've been legally separated for ten years. I'm about to start the divorce process. Is my spouse entitled to anything beyond the date that we signed the legal separation? That's a really good question, and I'll say, look, it really focuses on separation. Did you physically separate or did you legally separate? Now, if you legally separated, I ask, did you actually do an action for a legal separation or did you basically do a written separation agreement? The, the action for a legal separation is something that's rarely done these days, but it's still actually out there and on the books. Um, most people do the legal separation, which is based on hopefully a properly drafted separation agreement. Now, look. Equitable distribution, child support, spousal support. a lot of these things are based on the time frame, which is date of marriage until the date of the commencement of the divorce. Typically, your cutoff date for those things, again, and in large part, the, the main issue is equitable distribution. Your cutoff on, you know, increases in value of your pension, your 401k, increases in debt, increases in liability. How do you get the cutoff date from, again? Marital properties from the date of marriage to the date of commencement. How do you get the cutoff that that converts everything from marital property to separate property moving forward? The date of commencement of your divorce is the cutoff date. And with a legal separation, you're not starting the divorce action. You're just drafting the separation agreement. So what you're doing really is you're getting your cutoff date. Your date of commencement cutoff date, which which uh, distinguishes marital property from separate property moving forward, you're getting that cutoff date with a legal separation by contract. Okay, Your legal separation is saying, this is what we're doing, this is how we're dividing our marital assets as of the signing of this agreement or as of December 12, 2019. Um, That's your cutoff date. You're getting that by contract. But think about it. The date of commencement gives you the, the uh, cutoff date by operation of law, the date of commencement of your divorce. In a legal separation, you get it by contract. So, so really, you're relying almost solely on this contract. So when I answer this question of, okay, 10 years ago, I signed my legal separation. From the date of the signing of the legal separation until today's date when I'm filing for divorce, is any of that property that I am asked, the house I may have bought, the, the home equity loan I may have taken out, um, the increases in salary, are all of those things now possibly at risk from date of legal separation signing until today's date when I file for the divorce? If your legal separation was drafted properly, no, it is not. That signing of that legal separation, which may even have a specific date in it, that should give you the cutoff date for your equitable distribution, etc., Okay? Now I say as long as it was drafted properly. Okay? I've seen people say, and I listen, I I, I could tell you stories until till God knows when. Clients come in and say, Hey, you know, I separated from my wife. I moved out of the house in, in uh in two thousand two. So, you know, I, I'm good. I'm good. I don't owe her anything from two thousand two forward. Uh-uh. If you don't have a legal separation, properly drafted legal separation from 2002 until the date you commence your divorce by operation of law you're, you still are subject to some, some level of equitable distribution for that time frame it's somewhat different if you, if you physically separated there are arguments you can make but you're vulnerable there now if you've drafted your legal separation properly you've had the, a, a lawyer put it together drafted, filed okay you're good You're good from the date that legal separation was signed moving forward. So again, we get back to the importance of having the right lawyer that handles almost solely this area of law that's going to know all the ins and outs of this. So if you're out there and you're contemplating divorce or and you just want to do a legal separation or whatnot, just make sure it's drafted properly because if that legal separation fails, now you're vulnerable. Because by operation of law, the cutoff date is date of commencement of your divorce to distinguish between marital property and separate property moving forward. So underlying message here, just make sure if you're going to have these things done, you have them done by a lawyer who does this sort of area of law every, every day and is very familiar with family law and matrimonial law. <music> Okay, continuing with the, with the uh, subject matter of how to choose the right lawyer and why it's so important to make sure you have one and you get the right one, uh, here's another listener question I'd like to uh, uh, tackle with you. Uh, if the value of my house after settlement through a divorce mediator went up substantially and the divorce has been done three years ago, now I'm finding this house is worth substantially more than I thought it was worth, Can I go back now and change that agreement, that divorce mediation agreement? Well, we get back to what we talked about in the answer to our last listener question. If you have a document drafted, it's a divorce settlement agreement. Now, bear in mind, let me back up a little bit. Separation agreements and divorce settlement agreements are nearly identical. So with a separation, you do your separation agreement, and then at the end of a year, living separate and apart pursuant to the, se- to the separation agreement, as long as everybody's complied with it, you now have a ground for divorce. But if you're going to do the divorce all in one shot, you do the divorce agreement with the judgment of divorce. It's pretty much the same, the divorce agreement, as the separation agreement, okay? Separation agreement formulates the basis for your divorce judgment after the year, generally, and the divorce judgment or the divorce agreement ultimately formulates the basis for the judgment of divorce. But... It all turns on the terms of this agreement. If this agreement was properly drafted, and again, I say, when you tell me I had a divorce mediator, quote unquote, handle this case for me, is it resolved properly? Answer that question is, I don't know. The certification and the requirements to become a divorce mediator in New York State does not mean that you have to be a lawyer. Or anybody that's familiar with the area of divorce law, um, or even an experienced divorce attorney to become a divorce mediator. So if your divorce mediator, quote unquote, drafted this mediation agreement, I don't know how good it is. It could be completely worthless. It could also be something that's very well drafted. If your divorce mediation agreement was done well, and then your divorce was resolved pursuant to that divorce mediation agreement, then there's only three bases to get out of that agreement. It's basically fraud, duress, or coercion. Now, there's some other you know, interrelated uh, arguments you can make there, but again, now I get back to, like I said before. That's why the most important thing, and, there's, and, there's, and I think, let me back up a little bit. There's two lessons to be learned here. One, before you engage in any divorce mediation agreement, you need to make sure you know what that house is worth. And believe me, I've even had judges in some of these cases say, ah, just use Zillow, that, that's a, or just agree on a figure for the house. You don't just agree on a figure for the house. You have an expert tell you what the house is worth. Appraisals are three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for something that might ha- that you might have an interest in to the tune of a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. My advice to you: pay to get the appraisal done before you enter this agreement, and make sure your agreement is done well. So that house that you know three years later you find it's worth two hundred thousand dollars more than you thought. The only way you can combat against that, and again, Mark, you can't control market forces. Sometimes they do skyrocket like that, and there's nothing you can do about it. But at the time of the agreement, my advice to you, get an appraisal done. And number two, make sure you have the, even if you're having a divorce mediator help you with your agreement, make sure your divorce mediator is an experienced divorce attorney before they start doing legal drafting for you, okay? Because otherwise, that thing might not be worth the paper it's written on. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to Divorce Stories, episode number six, where we tackle the age-old question of, you know, do I really need a lawyer? How do I choose that lawyer? And what are the things I can look at? And again, what are the pitfalls if I don't choose the right lawyer? Don't forget, if you have questions you'd like to hear us answer on our podcast, send them to divorcestoriespodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. This is Dennis Vitrano, and we'll see you again next time.